Hey everyone, this is Dr. Michael Wald, and welcome to yet another episode of Ask the Blood Detective. For those new to the show, we talk about all manner of health and wellness issues, everything from nutritional supplements to toxins to electromagnetic influences to, of course, laboratory testing, because uh, I am the self-proclaimed blood detective, which means I use that, uh, that label to drive me to do better for the people that I work with. And for the purposes of the show, the term blood detective is meant to imply that you, you too, each of you listening can be your own personal blood detective. But the only way to do that is to gather information and then to learn how to holistically interpret that information and finally to apply that new information within a holistic context to your health and to your life. Now, over the last 30 years or so of my clinical nutrition practice, I have seen many individuals who, for the most part, are quite knowledgeable, but they do not know how to properly apply that knowledge to their individual needs. Whenever you hear about what supplement to take, what foods are best for you, what's the best way to detox or fast, you're hearing general information that may or may not apply to your needs. Some of these things that you hear about, let's just take intermittent fasting for a moment, may make someone with uh, diabetes much worse or someone with any manner of health problems worse. And on the other hand, intermittent fasting, like anything else you might hear, might make someone better temporarily to a certain extent. It may not be a cure-all, it never is. So my point here is to emphasize to you that this show, Ask the Blood Detective, is about putting this information together in your life. So I'll be going over some key points of what I feel we all need to stay healthy. I'll teach you how to stay healthy and how to get healthy in the first place. So all these guidelines I'm giving you today on the surface may seem very simple, but there's a lot to them. And I'll do my best over the course of the show to describe to you how to apply this information and knowledge to your health. If you have chronic health problems, meaning health problems that you've been dealing with for at least four to six months, that means you need assistance. And fundamental to all healing is nutrition. So that's my focus, obviously. But there are many ways of getting to what sort of nutrition do you actually need. So I'm going to start by giving a short disclaimer by letting you know that This information that I'm giving you today, like all the information I give on all the radio shows, is for educational purposes. I don't know you, so I couldn't possibly know how to personalize these suggestions for you. So I'll do the next best thing. I'll describe them in a general sense, but with some specifics. Let me start out with a key point when it comes to getting and staying healthy. And that key point is that There is no healthy diet. There is no single way of eating that is appropriate for everyone. And even if you personally were on some diet, let's call it a plant-based diet, which um, helped you in many ways, that doesn't mean that that is the diet you should stick with. That depends on your changing needs over time as an aging individual in a toxic environment. So, I see, for example, people who eat a plant-based diet probably on a daily basis and 
Many of them are deficient in a number of nutrients. So I believe that it's important to, uh, when you want to stay and get healthy, to recognize that diets may be limited. They may induce nutritional deficiencies or insufficiencies that you must know about, anticipate, and obviously manage. So when it comes to your nutritional needs, we need to recognize that nutritional needs vary from person to person. And even within that individual, even your nutritional needs over time will vary over the course of your lifetime. Now, you know this. Everyone knows this, but few people know how to apply that fact to how to adjust their diet and their nutritional supplements or lifestyle to keep ahead of the aging process and the disease process. Now, one of the ways of doing it is to seek out someone like me, it doesn't have to be me, but someone who can carefully consult with you to figure out your specialized nutritional needs. And they'll generally recommend certain health-related tests that help determine your specific needs. Now, I do wanna tell you a problem that I see. It's a very common problem in terms of uh, testing and recommendations by some of my colleagues. I have patients come to me and they have had uh, comprehensive digestive stool analyses, they've had amino acid profiles, they've had fatty acid profiles, Krebs cycle testing, food allergy testing. These tests you must be very weary of. Now why is that? Let me take food allergy testing first. It is true that food allergies can cause all manner of health problems. But I personally never check for food allergies first on an individual who I suspect has any significant level of inflammation. Even if it's their big toe that they bumped and hurt that's inflamed, those inflammatory mediators circulate and those inflammatory mediators will cause false positive food allergy tests. So the patient comes in and says to me, Dr. Well, I have 20 different food allergies. I eliminated them all. I felt better. Well, if you have a gallbladder attack and you stop eating, you'll feel better too until you start eating. My point though is, even if it's true that you eliminated foods on a test that there were false allergens, usually um, what that means is the inflammation in your body is causing leakiness in the intestinal tract and partially digested foods leak out from the intestinal tract into the bloodstream and cause more of an inflammatory autoimmune type reaction and you name the symptoms. But you'd want to first identify the levels of inflammation and their sources first, so that when you check for food allergies, you don't have all these fake food allergies showing up. It's like fake news, there's fake food allergies, okay? And as far as a fatty acid test, that test is extremely expensive and almost always people need omega-3 fatty acids. So I don't do that test. And I don't give omega-6 fatty acids to anyone ever because it's pro-inflammatory. Things like evening primrose oil, and gamma linolenic acid. Those are omega-6s, which are pro-inflammatory. The omega-3 fatty acids, like fish oil, blue-green algae, they are anti-inflammatory. And when it comes to using flaxseed oil, which is a combination of omega-3s, 6s, and 9s, I rarely use that because it requires more digestive metabolism, and most people who are sick can't really use it. All right, so we talked about in general, that there are a couple of tasks that we want to be weary of. The point is that 
Why do testing if the results of the testing really don't change what you would do for the person? And those tests I mentioned just don't. But even if you didn't catch all those tests, the point I want to get across to you is that you always want to ask the practitioner, how will the results of this test change what he or she does for you? If they cannot give you a, a very concise response, you know that you should probably not do that test. Let's move on to another point which has to do with health, and that is stress. There is the stress of life, and there is uh, what is called good stress, uh, the stress of exercise when done right, the stress of um, living, and that sort of stress is unavoidable. And then there is excessive amounts of those stressors, too much exercise, uh, working too hard, not sleeping enough, emotional, mental stress. That sort of stress is called distress, and that breaks the body down. Now, I've done very detailed shows on the stress response, which I would strongly suggest that you listen to because it's rare that you will hear that level of a conversation that's practical on what stress is, how it affects the body, and how your body uses it to its advantage until it does not. So managing stress is a big factor in every aspect of your health. It's as fundamental <clears throat> as water, sleeping, and food. And um, my show, by the way, on stress, you can find on my website at drmichaelwald.com. That's drmichaelwald.com under the blog section. You can just scroll down and then click on the title or you can search uh, in the search bar, which you can find on the homepage and on a few other pages, uh, the topic that you like, which would be stress in this case, and that, that show will pop up. If you practice the greatest nutrition on the planet in terms of food, supplementation, all of that, exercise, sleep, and you have excessive stress, it will undermine most of what you do. So identifying stress and managing your stress along with increasing your resiliency against stress, mentally and also nutritionally, that's how it needs to be done. Now let's jump to another point, which is related to the very first thing that I was talking about, which is seek out a clinical nutritionist who can check testing of vitamin and mineral use, not necessarily vitamin and mineral levels in the blood. Blood levels of most nutrients, like B vitamins, only tell us the last two to three days of intake of that vitamin. It's not telling us what you had over the course of a month or six months or a year or long term, which is what you want to know. Fat-soluble vitamins are a bit different, like vitamin D, which tells you generally many months of intake. But I brought up a certain point that I don't want you to miss. You want to seek out a clinical nutritionist, usually a doctor of nutrition, that has license to run blood tests. Nutritionists, dietitians, certified clinical nutritionists, uh, they do not have license, nor do they learn anything about laboratory testing in school. So if you want individual work, you have to have those tests done. I'm not saying you shouldn't seek out a qualified nutritionist that can't do the laboratory work, but you must also work with someone who can interpret and perform the laboratory work. Before we continue, for those of us uh, out there that are here for the first time, thank you so much for spending your time. My name is Dr. Michael Waldron, listening to Ask the Blood Detective. 
You can go to my website at drmichaelwald.com and you can email me your show topics and ideas and comments to info at blooddetective.com. And you can reach me if you want to have an in-person or distance phone consultation with me as a patient at 914-552-1442. So I was talking about nutrient use testing. So for example, you can measure the level of vitamin C in your urine, which is an excellent test for body stores. But you can also check a test in your urine called dehydroascorbic acid, which is the oxidized evil form, you might say, of vitamin C, which says that your body's not using the vitamin C properly. So they first say, when I say they, the natural healthcare field says, you are what you eat. We know that's not true. You're what you absorb from what you eat. I've said it many, many times throughout my shows. And then you, you're, you must activate your supplements. So if you absorb them, that's wonderful. But if they're not activated by your liver and your intestinal tract, then you don't get them used. So I always use activated forms of the nutrients that I uh, recommend uh, to my patients because they're not all the same. I was very shocked just a few weeks ago, a patient came in with, with cancer who had seen a practitioner that did a bunch of expensive testing, some of which uh, I mentioned earlier, and then said to just buy these supplements. And the person was left to try to figure out what supplements they need at a health food store. Well, they tried and they did not do a particularly good job. I mean, how could they with no guidance? Most of the supplements they received were not activated, None, not to mention that most store-bought nutrients are not pharmaceutical grade. And remember, we've said this before on prior shows, the New York State Attorney General's Office has surveyed supplements in the GNC and Whole Foods and other large uh, distributors, and most of their supplementation uh, is void of what's actually on the bottle. So this was on um, ABC World News Tonight. It was in the New York Times. The article of the, uh, the the title of the article was called "What's in Those Vitamins," and I did a radio show commenting on the New York Times article "What's in Those Vitamins," called "What's in Those Vitamins," on my website under the blog section. And again, you can search for it on the search bar on the on the home page. So yes, you want to have a qualified nutritionist do tests of use of nutrients. Now here's a couple of tests that you might want to consider for staying and getting healthy. The first is a body composition. And for those who've listened to the show, you know I'm big on body composition. That's an electrical test that is non-invasive, that tells us a lot about your biochemistry. I should say your, your functionality. It'll let us know your lean body mass. The better your lean body mass, generally the longer you live and the longer the quality of your life span. And then there is percentages of muscle, water, fat, water content in and outside of cells, and something called phase angle, which is a very important predictor of how well your body is actually using things, affecting the energy of cells, the energetics of cells. All of that is figured out through a body composition test. The dietary suggestions I provide with patients are based mostly on the body composition because that tells me the percentage of muscle, water, and fat, and then from that, I can calculate what proteins healthy carbs, and healthy fats that they need. If you're suffering from any chronic health problem and your body composition is poor, you will have a a poor outcome. If your body composition is poor and you think you've done the right things for yourself, it's not working. Everything has to translate into improvement in body composition because body composition is the most accurate single predictor test 
of morbidity and mortality in human beings. Also, you want to have tests of your bone density, particularly if you're over 50, especially if you have malabsorption and you're over 50. 60% of people over age 50 do malabsorb, which means they do not extract everything from the foods they're eating because of poor digestive function. Now that can lead to any health problem and certainly can cause bone loss. So I use a non-radiation bone density test called an Achilles heel test. The test measures the bone density in your heel and there's ultrasound gel that's rubbed on the back part of your foot. It's put in the machine and then the machine lets out two warm sort of balloons filled with water that squish up against your foot on either side of it, squishing the ultrasound gel. And the gel acts as a medium that allows the ultrasound itself to jump from the balloon into the gel, into your foot, bouncing off your bone. And once the bounce off happens, there's a calculation of bone density. And this test has been compared to the Achilles, I'm sorry, to the DEXA scan, which most of you are familiar, uh, if you've had a DEXA scan for bone density before, which emits quite a lot of radiation. But the, um, the Achilles test does not involve radiation, and it's just as accurate. So I do that because if a person has any bone loss, that usually goes along with increased heart disease because the bone loss means that you're losing calcium from bones, which can then be deposited in arteries, causing them to become hardened, causing atherosclerosis, which can raise blood pressure to cause all kinds of clogged arteries and things of that nature. Also, when you're losing bone, the calcium can store in your breast tissue, causing uh, breast cancer, or in your muscles and your brain, causing brain fog and muscle aches and pain, and uh, kidney stones, of course, and uh, calcium has to do with blood clotting. So a lot happens when calcium is off. So I recommend that people have a non-radiation Achilles bone density test uh, if you're 50 years or older, or if you have malabsorption, to have it as young as 40. And I have found bone density loss in uh, young people uh, in, in the area of even in their 30s. And then I might want to perform or consider performing toxin tests of specific toxins. I mean, we're hearing all the time about how toxins are bad. And a toxin, by definition, is something that your body uh, does not desire. It has uh, no positive effect in the body. But there are literally countless toxins. Just to name a few, there's estrogen toxins. There are bacterial toxins made in your body called endotoxins. And there's, of course, mercury toxins and cadmium and arsenic, et cetera, et cetera. So there is no one way to detox to handle all of those different toxins. They're just not removed the same way. But this has not caught on yet. Such a basic concept uh, out there where people are still doing these sort of general uh, detoxifications and they feel better. Uh, but that doesn't mean they've done anything. There's lots of reasons why a person would feel better. So I'm just saying... If you want to get the maximum effect out of a detox effort, you may want to do toxin tests to find out what the toxins are. And then you can focus the foods and or nutritional supplement uh, suggestions uh, targeting those toxins. Once again, estrogen toxicity, like 17-estradiol, that's highly carcinogenic. 
But that is removed differently than, let's say, cadmium, which is a metal that's in air pollution and in cigarette smoke, and that's removed differently than arsenic from the body. So there's not any one way to remove all toxins at once. So I tend to look at the entire individual, look at their chemistries, then I develop a plan that keeps every single thing in mind, then we begin a plan, then we check on certain tests to make sure that what we're doing is actually working beyond just feeling better. I hope that makes sense. And then there is pH testing. And for those of you who know me from the show, you know that this is a pet peeve of mine, how not just individuals, but even healthcare providers that should know better are just not getting this pH thing right. The pH of urine is different from saliva, which is different from blood. We can go on and talk about the pH in the mouth, and the pH in the stomach, and the pH in the small intestine, the pH in the large intestine, the pH in the venous blood versus the arterial blood. Venous blood is the test to do overall for body chemistry. And it's a simple test, but it's very important. And I do that on everyone because of the fundamental role that pH plays in health, disease, and repair, because our topic today is how to stay and get healthy. And then there are some other important tests. One of them is called lactic acid. Many individuals, particularly after their 40th birthday, they tend to produce either too much lactic acid or they do not get rid of the lactic acid quickly enough. So what happens is lactic acid being an acid lowers the pH of the blood and that's associated with inflammation and just what they call aberrant function in different places of the body depending on how your body chooses to respond. Lactic acid is produced also by red blood cells that are not oxygenating properly. So if I find a high lactic acid on an individual, I'm going to want to consider oxygen issues. I might also use hyperbaric air therapy in that individual. And then there's something, a test called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a gas that is produced by the cells that are the blood vessels. And they cause the lactic acid, I'm sorry, the uh, nitric oxide causes the blood vessel to dilate. It also acts as a signal molecule, nitric oxide, for a lot of different processes in the body, such that if you're deficient in it, that can lead to many cancers, like breast cancer, for example. There's so much more I could say about these tests, but I'm just trying to give you a, a sense of the importance of certain tests over others that, like these tests, are so much more useful than a fatty acid test or an amino acid test or even a stool test. Some of you are saying, well, why, why a stool test? Isn't that useful for like parasites? Well, it can be, but mostly no. Uh, parasites are not usually uh, picked up on these tests because they're adhering to the bowel wall. They're not coming out in the stool. And even when they are, they're very, very rare and scant and they, uh, they commonly do not show. The other thing is, even when a parasite does show, uh, on stool testing, that does not mean that that's causing your problems. If you have symptoms that strongly suggest that you have a parasitic problem and the test is positive, well, that means something more. That does mean there may be a connection, more or less. So I'm not saying there's zero utility, but I wouldn't necessarily run there first if I thought someone had a parasite. I'd want to look at the blood test. I'd want to look at the cells called, the white blood cells called eosinophils. They're usually elevated and they cost nothing uh, when you test that. 
And I always would want to check my patients for their ability to absorb. Because as I mentioned earlier, after age 50, 60% of individuals malabsorb. And malabsorb simply means that they will not absorb and utilize everything that they're eating. And if you're not utilizing properly what you're consuming, your body will become nutrient deficient. And as it becomes nutrient deficient, it starts to break down and not work as well. And this can be a very subtle process over a very long period of time. So I make sure myself to check these tests out every several months. Not everyone needs to do that. It also depends upon your health goals. You know, I have pretty lofty health goals, so I, I check things at certain spans of time. So everything should be based on the individual's health goals, their current state of health or ill health, their genetics, whether or not they smoke, uh, do they drink, exercise, yes or no, fluid intake, yes or no, what's their foods like, what about their medications, uh, their family factors, and the results of specific tests are just some of the ways in which I figure out through my blood detective approach what people need. So let me give you just some practical suggestions. Uh, a lot of them are food-based. Keeping in mind, folks, that you may need very different foods than what I'm mentioning here. If you malabsorb, I would be giving you different foods than if you absorb normally and supplements. If you had inflammatory bowel disease, again, everything changes. If you have a neurological problem or a hormonal problem, a cardiovascular problem, the, the dietary suggestions must change and they must change based upon your chemistry, not just your diagnosis, okay? So the first thing a person probably would want to do if they live in the United States is increasing the amounts of whole unprocessed foods in the diet. You know, fresh vegetables and fruits and whole grains, beans, raw nuts, and raw seeds. So some of you are thinking, well, grains are evil, they're no good for me. If they're no good for you, then they're no good for you. That doesn't mean they're no good for others. Not everyone also, by the way, is gluten intolerant. And as far as fruit, fruit sugar is very different than sucrose and glucose, which are table sugar and desserty sugars. Fructose, along with the phytonutrients, the plant nutrients, the fibers, the fluids, and other factors found in plants, um, are practically good for everyone, including diabetics. Uh, fruit does not generally change blood sugar uh, because of all of those constituent ingredients. There are exceptions. That's why I make sure to check that patient's glucose levels in response to specific foods. You may have heard of the glucose index or the glycemic index of foods. For those of you who have not, that's simply a list of foods that are thought to cause rises uh, or has very little effect upon the body when they're consumed. So without going over the details of what the glycemic index foods are, because you can look those up, I must tell you that that chart of glycemic foods is not accurate for each person. I have tested people that had a high or hyperglycemic response to beef, which should be a very low glycemic response, but they had a low glycemic response to bread. Just the opposite of what the pages say because they were based on a limited number of individuals. That's what most information is based on, everyone. So it's important that you see someone that compares you to you over time and doesn't ignore what things 
you know, what things are out there that say that most people respond this way, most people will respond that way. Most may do that, that that doesn't mean that it's okay for you, but I might think about that statement and see if it applies to you in any way, but I ultimately only care about what you need for your needs. And um, I should mention too that roasted nuts and seeds are much more saturated. The, the, the content of saturated fats increases while the raw nuts uh, are mostly unsaturated. They may have some naturally occurring saturated fats, but it's much less than if you roast them. And then you want to diversify your diet, including you know new and different foods in your diet, even each week that are from the fruit and vegetable column, uh, the grains, nuts, seeds column. If you're someone that eats meat, poultry, fish, chicken, then eat those things. But of course, you want to eat them as cleanly as possible, getting farm raised and all of that. Um, but even these foods still have issues. You can't escape it. So we, uh, but we still, that is still better than eating foods that are from the typical animal farms that are, you know, injected with um, everything from uh, anabolic steroids to antibiotics. So you want to rotate the foods that you eat so you don't consume a given food every every day. And that helps to ensure that your body doesn't become uh, allergic to it. So the foods that you eat most commonly, you can become allergic and have symptoms like headaches, not the typical allergy symptoms like like uh, histaminic wheels on your, you know, on your skin. Uh, but you just might have a bunch of symptoms that keep happening. So if you keep rotating your foods, it reduces that. So every... Um, Every day you want to have something new and you want to try to not have the same food every four days uh, if you can. Okay. Now, as far as fats in your diet, the total amount of fats should be roughly 20 to 30% of your total diet. But again, this does depend on the health problem that you have. So this is assuming a, a relatively healthy person um, who wants general advice. And that would be fats should be about 20 to 30% of your diet. And we want those to be the, the polyunsaturated fats, except for the of coconut oil, which is a saturated fat, and also monounsaturated fats, or which are uh, avocados, for example, and omega nine uh, fats, which are olive oil. And when you use olive oil, you purchase olive oil. You want to purchase it in a tin, uh, and it should be Italian imported, a cold pressed, virgin olive oil. Say that three times fast. Uh, because that is going to be the, the cleanest oil that you can buy. And then as far as the saturated fats, which I've mentioned, you know, they're mostly in animal products. You want to keep these down to less than 10% of your total diet. There are uh, phone applications now that can keep track and estimate the content of various foods in your diet. These are just broad estimates. So don't be surprised if your efforts dietarily are not working. It may be because you're consuming foods that your, your, your food app tells you are fine, but they simply may not be. So just to reiterate, the healthy oils that you should consider consuming are the unsaturated essential omega-3s and the 9s. Flaxseed might be appropriate for some people, but in general, I don't like to use it. The reason, again, is because it requires several enzyme steps, and these enzymes require several vitamins and minerals that m many people do not have enough of, so they can't really break down the flaxseed oil. But if you have the fish oil, the EPA, DHA, that is already broken down. You want to get an omega-3 oil from fish that is metal-free, okay? 
And then there's, of course, olive oil. I've mentioned a few times, canola oil, salmon, cod, tuna, mackerel, uh, currants, uh, raw sunflower seeds. And these are probably off the top of my head the better ones to consume. You want to store your oils and your nuts and seeds in the refrigerator because if you don't, they start to break down and they become rancid. So let's talk about a high-fiber diet. So first of all, eat a high-fiber diet unless you have inflammatory bowel disease or diverticulitis or you have any other reason why you shouldn't have a high-fiber diet, then don't do it. But for the rest of you, consuming a lot of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, and minimizing your intake of refined and processed foods like desserts, a table sugar, white flour, that would put you in the area that you need to be. Eliminating those foods, I said to eliminate, and eating fiber in the forms of whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, vegetables, and fruits should do you quite a lot of good. Fiber is the undigested part of the, the food that your intestinal bugs, bacteria, act upon. And as they try to digest the fiber, the bacteria, they produce certain very healthful chemicals known as uh, caprylic acid and butyric acid, which help repair the intestinal tract, help uh, reduce cancer risk, move things along. Uh, they bind to estrogens and other spent hormones that the body shoves back into the intestinal tract. But if they're not moved out, if you're, let's say, relatively constipated, they get resorbed back into the body, which floods your body with all these stressful chemicals. You want to make sure that you're consuming sufficient protein every day. So about 15 to 20% of the diet should be protein. With me, it's a lot higher because I weight train and I run, and those two things require more protein. Good protein sources include meat. Again, free range is best. And poultry, uh, fish, eggs, uh, soy products. But if you have a history of any form of cancer that's estrogen-related or even progesterone-related, um, you do not want to consume soy. Bits of soy here and there are fine, but you don't want to make it a daily thing in your diet. If I have a patient who has prostate, ovarian, or breast cancer, or any other estrogen-related cancer, I'm going to say no soy at all. The literature on this is mixed because soy can act like an estrogen or soy can block an estrogen, but you never know how it's going to act in a person, so I eliminate it. Okay? Other protein sources would be uh, beans, uh, low-fat dairy products, and nuts. And as I mentioned earlier, a body composition test will show us exactly how many grams of protein that you need to lose weight and or to maintain the weight you're on. Very, very important to, to consider that test. But not only will a body composition tell me the amount of proteins you need per day, but also carbohydrates and fats. So, for example, you might need one gram of protein per kilogram of your weight to maintain where you're at or to gain more lean mass, which will help you lose weight. Because it's the lean mass in the body, which is the muscles and the organs that contain the metabolic rate. Another very important point that most of you know, 
You know, sometimes repetition is the mother of knowledge <laughs> in the sense that you'll hear something a little differently and then you have a, an aha moment. So you want to decrease or eliminate all the refined and processed sugars in your diet. And as a substitute, use natural unprocessed sugars that'll be higher in vitamins and minerals. Um, and well, like one example might be uh, pure maple syrup. And in addition to uh, pure maple syrup, uh, fruit-only jams, uh, fresh fruit, honey, molasses, barley malt, brown rice, and carob. These are, these are good natural forms of sweeteners. Another key point for staying well and gaining health is your fluid intake. There is no one way to figure out if you're hydrated, but I'm gonna let you know the, the several ways which sometimes you have to use in combination to figure this out. So first of all, there's what's called a Turger test where uh, the practitioner, like me, would tug on the skin on the back of your hand, so not the palm, but the other side, and to pull with two fingers towards the ceiling, and then to watch the recoil of that skin. And if you're dehydrated, that skin will come back pretty slowly. Even if it comes back fast, you can actually still see on the skin a line, which means you're probably a little bit underhydrated. It could also mean you have estrogen deficiencies and other problems, but it could be a sign of underhydration. And in addition to that, you want to drink plenty of water every day. Mineralized water, unless you have a health problem that you should not have mineralized water. So... Plenty of water every day means you need to figure out, figure out what your water intake is or should be. So it's generally your body weight divided by two multiplied by 0 0.8. So I'll say it again. Your body weight divided by two multiplied by 0 0.8. And that'll equal the number of ounces your body needs of water every day. If you're exercising, you're going to need more, and that's just something you have to estimate. So we've learned about the skin turgor test, the figuring out your water intake based on your body weight, multiplied by, I'm sorry, divided by two, multiplied by 0 0.8 as the number of ounces per day you need. But another way is to do a test called BUN, B-U-N, blood urea nitrogen. When it's elevated, it could mean that you either have a kidney problem or you have a hydration problem. So sometimes you have to put these tests together. And another way to tell is to look at your urine. And your urine should be straw-colored. It should not be clear. But if you're taking nutrients and eating certain foods, like beets, let's say, they can easily change the color of your urine. It can be very confusing. So you can't really rely only on that. So these are the different things that I might consider when I'm approaching a patient trying to figure out you know, what they need from a hydration point of view. And then, of course, how do you fix the hydration? What is the best water to have? Is it reverse osmosis? It depends on the individual. If you need minerals and you drink reverse osmosis water, you're going to sap yourself of all the remaining minerals you have left. So that's unhealthy. But if you consume mineralized water and you have, let's say, hardening of the arteries, then the problem there is you will make that problem worse. So I have to figure that out when I'm sitting before someone uh, looking at the entire health history. Now let's talk about another point, and it has to do with the number of meals you eat per day. 
So everyone now is excited about intermittent fasting and fasting for 16 hours, let's say, or there's different variations of it. I did an entire show on it called Intermittent Fasting, which you can listen to at my website, which is drmichaelwald.com, and just search Intermittent Fasting in the search bar on the homepage, or go to the blog section. And uh, just a quick uh, hello out there for those of you listening. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. The topic of today's show is how to stay and get healthy. We've talked about stress. We've talked about tests of absorption and pH and your body composition. We've talked about eliminating refined and processed foods and food combining. We've talked about healthy fats, proteins, carbs, things of that nature, uh, the importance of fiber, how to determine the amount of protein that you need uh, during your day. We've talked about the role of various sugars and how refined and processed sugars are very different than fruit sugar. And if you're eliminating fruit sugar in the form of fruit, you could be exchanging that for an increased risk of many different types of cancers. We talked about how to figure out your water intake through a number of different methods, which you might need to combine by pulling on the skin on the back of your hand called the Turger test to calculating the number of ounces of water you need by taking your body weight Dividing it by two, multiplying that by 0.8, giving you the number of ounces you need each day. Or you can look at a blood test at your blood urea nitrogen, or you can look at your urine color. And then there's a test of urine called specific gravity that can tell the doctor, also in the context of everything else, are you underhydrated? Are your kidneys working normally? Now we're about to talk about how many meals you should eat in a day. Well, again, I don't know you, so I don't know exactly, but the best general rule I can tell you is you want to eat several small meals throughout the day instead of two or three large meals. This helps balance your blood sugar, your energy levels generally throughout the day. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's old school, Dr. Wall. That's old school, blood detective man. Uh, We're talking about intermittent fasting now. Um, Intermittent fasting may be appropriate for people. I do not find it appropriate for most of the people that I see. Uh, you know, I had a woman uh, with cancer who was losing weight over uh, 25 pounds in a few months. And as I was questioning her, uh, she admitted that she was doing intermittent fasting and she was told that the intermittent fasting might reduce the side effects of chemotherapy. Well, they might. my intermittent fasting might do that. And I looked at the studies on this, and it did seem to suggest that, except she's trading off losing lean body mass, which certainly is going to um, speed, and, uh, I, I should say, it, but the weight loss is going to worsen her outcome. If you lose lean mass, I don't care how you did it. You could have done it through a method which is supposed to be healthy, which is intermittent fasting, if you lose your lean mass, you're going to die earlier or you're going to have more side effects or it's just not going to work out so well for you. So there are certain times, places, and individuals, the right person, the right treatment, done the right way. Not everyone please do this intermittent fasting business. So eat several small meals throughout the day. The types of foods you would eat would depend on the evaluation of the practitioner. I might have a conversation with you and it's determined that I don't think you absorb fats well enough. And you need omega-3 fats for the brain health, for heart health, for anti-inflammation, for detoxification. So it's important to figure, get figured out 
what foods you actually need that you might then want to eat uh, several times throughout the day rather than in big amounts. You know, when we, oftentimes you will hear it said that, you know, because our paleo ancestors ate a certain way, we should eat a certain way. That was a long, long time ago, millions of years, in fact. So maybe we're very different from that. So I don't think that's a fair comparison. Do I think that most people should be eating largely a plant-based diet? I do. I do. Uh, but not necessarily because our ancestors did. Uh, and paleo diets that seem to have whey in them often, uh, there was no whey in the paleo life. And there was no paleo diet. There were just people, the early hominids, eating different ways in different regions and locations uh, on the planet. Some were closer to the shore. So they ate more fish, and because they ate more fish, the omega-3 content of the diet was greater, their brains were larger, their skulls were larger, they were smarter, etc. And then there were people, early hominids in, who knows, everywhere from, uh, you know, what we now call Japan to Taiwan to California, uh, that ate very, very differently. And then they, they mixed bread, and then their genetics got crossed. So there's no, there's no one way to eat. The one way to eat for you is something you have to figure out. Okay, I hope that made some sense. Oh, you know, I'll mention something too yesterday. A patient brought up to me that uh, the relative of, of theirs with cancer, breast cancer, uh, drinks a lot of uh, alkaline water. I've said this before on the uh, PH Lies show, that alkaline water is mostly harmful. Unless you have ulcers or esophagitis or gastritis and you've been recommended to take antacids or proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers, but you don't want to take those. So if you said to me, what, Dr. What would I take if, if I just do not want to take those? It would be alkaline water because that's the, the situations where you would need alkaline water to alkalinize your intestinal tract. But for a person drinking that all the time, you're going to alkalinize your digestive tract, which is going to cause malabsorption. It will cause the overgrowth of infectious bugs in the intestinal tract. Because it's shutting off your stomach acid, the alkaline water, you're not going to ionize your calcium. So calcium is going to deposit in all the wrong places, um, which is bad for breast cancer or anything. And uh, you will not cleave B12 from proteins in your foods, and you will increase your risk of upper respiratory tract infections. You reduce your overall immunity. So this alkaline food business is mostly garbage for those reasons. And if some of you out there disagree, I want to know why. And we'll address it on the show, I promise. Because if some of you teach me something that I didn't know that's correct and I verified it, I'm going to share it with everyone. So a few remaining practical points when you want to maximize your health span and your lifespan. Number one, chew your food thoroughly. You want to chew your food until it's a liquid, basically. And that will reduce stress upon your digestive tract, and your body can use that energy for something else. And you can extract and will extract more of the nutrition from the foods when you chew more thoroughly. The other thing I would suggest is don't drink fluids with your meals because you might dilute your stomach acid, causing or worsening digestive problems. So if you're eating your foods and drinking, you, it's just chemistry, really. You're just diluting your stomach acid. It might take five minutes to come back to normal. It might take 15 minutes. So by that time, food sitting in your gut, it can cause problems. 
If you have to drink something during your meals, well, drink water, but sip it. Don't swallow it down in large amounts. Does that make sense? Okay. The other thing would be to always take a good multivitamin mineral, unless that multivitamin mineral contains things in it that you should not be taking. If it contains iron and you're not iron anemic, then you should not take it. And if you are iron anemic and you do take an iron-containing supplement, that can cause iron excess accumulation. And that can be very damaging to the body, increasing the risk of heart attacks and cancer, among other things, uh, including just generalized uh, inflammation. I don't usually prefer multivitamins because I base my recommendations upon a careful consultation and intake and nutritionally oriented uh, exam and questionnaires, along with specific testing and everything else you bring to the table, your goals, uh, your responses to my paperwork that I would have you complete. And that usually sheds light on quite a lot of what your needs are. So then I put together a plan that's built around you. And then another thing that might be of use for just living better would be to consider food combining. If you're an individual over 50 with digestive problems, you might bring some relief to your gut if you have some knowledge about which foods should be eaten with others and which foods probably should not because individual foods are digested and break down at different pHs uh, with different enzymes present. And if you combine foods that have very different digestive needs, it could create digestive problems. But even if you don't have digestive problems, food combining might still be of some benefit to you. Just to give you a few examples, there would be, uh, in terms of food combining, foods that would be considered excellent to combine together. And then there would be foods that would be considered good to combine. And then others that are just poor. So foods that are poor when eaten together from a digestive perspective would be, let's say, having an avocado with uh, olive oil. That's a poor combination. It's mostly because of the protein content of the avocado. And also, similarly, you wouldn't want to have eggs uh, with green tea. Like who would have thought? Now, a good combination, let's say, of a certain fat or oil with a carbohydrate would be having, let's say, uh, coconut oil with split peas. I don't, I don't mean you cook with them together like that, but I'm just letting you know that if they were in your stomach at the same time, th- that would be okay. Um, also, butter uh, can be combined well with grains and also beans. Excellent combinations, though. The, the, that combination I just gave you was considered a good one, but excellent combinations, things that really work well together would be things like having asparagus, um, broccoli, Brussels sprouts with olive oil. That works well. And also when it comes to the fruits, fruits basically don't work well with anything, whether they're acid fruits, sub-acid fruits, or sweet fruits. 
uh, or melons. So those are things that you just, you don't combine any of those fruit categories with anything else by at least uh, two hours or so in between. So let me restate a little more clearly some food combining principles that can help you digest better, help you overcome malabsorption, and are really as good as can be under the digestive tract most of the time. Carbohydrates and proteins should never be eaten together or during the same meal period. Uh, milk and other dairy products, they're discouraged for human consumption, you know, just outright because uh, humans seem to be the only animals that drink the milk of other animals and it's, it's an antigenic stress on the body, meaning it can stress out the immune system. And um, garlic has been reported to produce some adverse side effects and should be considered as something you would add in tiny, tiny amounts, not big cloves of it. I'd rather you take a garlic capsule to thin your blood than eat a lot of garlic. But I believe that during my uh, radio show where I talked about different diets, I speak more about uh, the food combining principle and I compare it with, with others. So in short, what you want to think about is this. You don't simply want to hear about what foods and supplements might work for you or what type of exercise is best for you. You want to figure, look at those areas, examine them and say, well, okay, are they best for me and how do I apply them to me? So if you also decide, for example, that you're going to take nutritional supplements, right? Wouldn't you maybe do some testing and or at least survey your own sort of symptoms and say, yeah, I think I need some zinc because I have dry skin. I have these white things on my, my nails. So that's what zinc signs. So I'm going to take zinc. And other times you're going to say, well, maybe I need some vitamin A because I have very dry skin and these bumps on the back of my arms, which by the way, they call vitamin A bumps. Now, if you take supplements, you can base it on symptoms like that. Uh, but I wouldn't only do that. I would use that as part of the evidence of need for the nutrient. And then I would do certain tests, like I mentioned earlier, which help determine how much, even when, is best to take those supplements and if you really need them. Sometimes the best test of, let's say, zinc need is the speed of a white blood cell under a microscope, not a zinc level in the blood. A zinc level in the blood, as I mentioned earlier, really is only good enough to tell us the last two to maybe four days of zinc intake. So it doesn't mean that that is, again, a month or two or three of a deficiency if it shows up that way. It may not be a deficiency at all because the blood levels, they can go up and down, even from hour to hour. So it's best to investigate functional nutritional tests when they're available. They're not available for every nutrient. So a functional test of zinc, as I mentioned, would be if you give zinc to a person who's zinc deficient and if zinc caused a sluggish immune system, then their immune system will improve because the speed of their white blood cells, especially the neutrophils, will improve. Then I also mentioned earlier on that if you have enough vitamin C in your body, well, that's great. You can figure that out by looking at your urine vitamin C because if you have enough in your body, it'll spill over eventually into your urine. If it's not in the urine, it means you don't have enough in your body. Now, that's a level. But if you check in the urine, something called dehydroascorbate, that is a, that is a, 
a breakdown product of vitamin C, and that can indicate that you are not using it normally because you're deficient in other antioxidants that would have recycled that dehydroascorbic acid, turning it back into ascorbic acid, vitamin C. So remember, you're all honorary blood detectives, so I'm giving you this kind of detail. I also realize you have the ability to listen to the show again if need be, if there were ever a time that you needed to go back on this information. You can also email me at any point. Uh, I can't provide you specific information, obviously, about your health, but I can answer certain questions. I might direct you to my blog to post the questions so that everyone can benefit from your question uh, plus the response. So I'm going to leave you today with all that information to think about. Hopefully you'll apply some of it. And to just remind you, let me know the topics you'd like. I only do the topics that you like. You can email me those topics at info at blooddetective.com. And you can also email me at Dr. Michael Wald. I'm sorry, that's not the email. The, the email I just gave you, info at drwald.com. Or you can go to the website. You can look at the blog section. You can search for lots of content there, which is uh, drmichaelwald.com. And if you'd like to work with me personally to get this health building done, I'd be happy to do that. My number is 914-552-1442. And I will see you all very soon. Thanks again for joining me. This is Dr. Michael Wald. You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Too late. Oh.